Hello and welcome to episode 269 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In Stateline, Nevada, I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson and Austin, Texas, new member of the LSAT Demon team, Kaylin McDaniel. How's everybody doing? Doing good. Yeah, it's good. Kaylin's got some some construction going on above her and she's <laughs> asked them to uh, pipe it down while we do the show. So hopefully uh, the construction folks will... Uh, cooperate. Today, we're going to talk to uh, Kaylin is on the show because uh, she applied for and was denied and appealed and was granted an LSAC fee waiver. So we're going to talk to Kaylin about that process and hopefully try to save y'all a little bit of money. We're going to do a, a listener question. Oh, sorry. This is actually from another member of the demon team who wrote in anonymously to correct us on some of our speculations about scholarships with below 25th percentile GPAs. We have a little bit more information about that little clarification, um, kind of fact checked. We have a listener email, uh, asking for Ben's book club slash Nathan's film club. So maybe we'll have some more, uh, book and film recommendations. A student who's just starting out with Demon Live had some questions about, you know, hey, once I do a practice test, what's the thing I should do next? What should I focus on? We have an update from a uh, successful Demon student. And then we have uh, DH's personal statement at the end of the show to shred. This show is going to air on Monday, October 26th upcoming dates that you should be aware of. Let's see. November 11th is going to be the beginning of the November LSAT flex testing week. You have until December 2nd to register for the January LSAT flex. You have until January 6th to register for the February LSAT flex. You can email the show. Um, as you might've noticed, we get most of our information and corrections and that type of thing from our listeners. So please email the show help at thinking Leave us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, do all those types of things. Um, that's the only way that people find out about us. So please, uh, do support the show if you can. All right. Uh, let's see fee waivers. This is really important for a lot of reasons. Um, the LSAC, Law School Admission Council, offers a fee waiver program. You can show financial need. They keep talking about how it has to be extreme hardship. Um, but if you get it, you get, what do you get? Two LSATs for free. You get the credential assembly service for free. You get a bunch of these reports for free. You get the uh, score preview for free. And now on our end, you get uh, LSAT Demon for free, or at least we charge you a nominal $30 fee. That's the fee that LSAC charges us, so we have to charge you so we don't lose money. But for 30 bucks, you can get four months worth of the LSAT Demon if you qualify for the LSAC, uh, LSAC fee waiver. So the LSAC fee waiver is worth a couple thousand dollars Yeah, pretty easily. Kaylin, you are a brand new LSAT demon tutor, and you just taught your first class yesterday yes. morning. That was a reading comp basics class that you just taught. Yeah. Welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I'm really excited to be a part of the team. Honestly, when I heard you guys were hiring, I took the August LSAT. And of course, I wanted that 170 range. But when I heard you guys were hiring, I was like, oh my gosh, that would be 
almost more fun for the next year than it would be to go to law school. So <laughs> not almost more fun. Trust me. That's quite a bit more fun than law school. <laughs> yeah. So of course I was excited for, you know, my law school prospects, but I immediately emailed and joined the team. And so, yeah, it's been a slow start as I've been phasing out of my uh, full-time job, but I'm really enjoying it. Amazing. Thanks for being here. We've already heard good things about your uh, tutoring and your classes. So uh, yeah, welcome. Happy to have you as part of the team. Hopefully you'll just stay with us and never go to law school. <laughs> we'll see. I actually, just as we sat down here, um, I got my confirmation that my application was received and completed at Harvard. And I have a few other ones out there and yeah, we'll see. But I'm nervous after the last <laughs> show when you guys were talking about the competitiveness of this cycle. Oh my goodness. I'm nervous. Uh, well, you know, great candidates are always going to do fine. There's not going to, you know, the, yes, it is the most competitive law school admission cycle in recent memory slash ever, according to Anne Levine. But, uh, you know, you've got your 99th percentile LSAT score and good grades, I'm sure, and are a strong applicant in a million other ways. So there will be seats available, even though it's a really tough year. I have a feeling it's going to be a particularly tough year at Harvard, though, because of all the deferrals. I mean, the schools that do allow deferrals, which happens more at the top than it does down in the lower rankings, those schools got a ton of COVID deferrals. Right. And all those people now are going to be going to law school this um, starting in 2021. So yeah, it's going to be a tough one. All right. So what's, what's up? Tell us, get, walk us through the process. You, you applied for the fee waiver. So I applied for it and I kind of went back and peeked through it because this was last year. I did it almost exactly a year ago. Um, so I submitted all my documents. It was basically there. It's really open-ended. It basically just says, submit what you, um, have to show things you need to submit your bank statements, your taxes, but kind of like the person that was on the show last, or that was, you were talking about in the show last week, I sent in all of those things. Um, I think I sent in my tuition because I was currently a student and I was, yeah, I did all of that stuff. And I mean, yeah, so it's just, first of all, I just want to, it feels a little bit, you know, I'm like talking about personal money stuff, but I also really want to destigmatize those kinds of things because it's like, we all have our money situations. And so it's like, I would, I want to be like as open as possible with all of this. So basically I was a student and I've been independent because I was like technically emancipated when I was like in 18 or so. So, I mean, it's, it's fine, but, um, so I've been independent paying for my own school for my entire four years, um, working, but it was, so it was nice because I had my independent taxes and everything, but yeah, did that whole thing. And then I was reading all of these different forums at the time I've been, I know you guys have referred to it before as like stasturbating and like reading everything on Reddit. I did all of those things that you're not supposed to do, you know, just got really in my own head about it. And kind of what I gathered from that as I was applying was there are lots of people that are applying that make $20,000 a year, just right above the poverty line or even right at the poverty line. And they have two kids and it's this whole like really messy complication, complicated story. But the reality is the people that you're competing with for fee waivers are students like me, like I was, who was actually only working part-time for maybe like $15 an hour or something. And my taxes showed that even though I, I probably wasn't in as dire of a situation as a single mom making $20,000 a year, 
that the numbers reflected that I was more dire than that. And so that's just an unfortunate reality of, you know, what the numbers are showing, even though I was getting a scholarship and all those kinds of things. Um, so I was initially denied, I'm guessing because, you know, I really can't say honestly. Um, Oh, I can say actually, they told me I was denied because I had $10,000 in the bank account. Almost exactly like the girl, I'm guessing it was a girl that was on last week. Yeah. It was a listener who wrote in and said she had gotten, she had gotten a, oh, it was a freelance job that had like not paid her for a while. And then they all, they paid her all at once. And so when she had to send in the bank statement, the bank statement, she happened to have 10 grand in there and then. <laughs> well, what basically happened was the exact same thing. I had um, and that amount in my savings, basically. And but the, the truth was, and what I wrote back to them was, I'm paying for my the rest of my tuition, whatever was left. Um, I knew it was I had another semester left of school or two semesters left of school, so I just wrote them back and said, "Yes, I have ten thousand dollars there, but it's money that's going to pay for my on campus housing, and here's the amount that that's going to cost." I got that like as a bill from my school. And you can see that I've paid this much to live in on-campus housing last year. So I'm going to pay this much next semester. And then, yeah, I got approved. It's not that dramatic. It's okay. kind of pretty straightforward. I mean, the really, the biggest, the most important thing I think to keep in mind is as unfortunate as it is, it's really just based on what the numbers look like on paper. And I'm guessing they have a set amount that they are going to give out. And so I'm not sure if time of year matters. I applied last August um, yeah, that, that listener, we don't have it on the agenda, but maybe I'll read some excerpts from it here. Um, that listener did appeal and was denied. She says, hi, just listened to the episode. As soon as I finished listening to the episode, I opened my email to see this message. Apparently I'm just not poor enough exclamation point. And here's what it sounds like when you get denied. Um, Dear, you know, X, I'm writing in response to your inquiries and concerns raised to LSAC regarding the denials of your application for a, a, a LSAT fee waiver and the appeal of the decision. Oh, so she actually appealed her appeal and got denied again. Three strikes. Um, oh, I have had the opportunity to review your file and correspondence. And I assure you that everything you have submitted has been carefully considered, including the explanations you provided regarding cash balances in your bank account. Please know that we do not question the hardship or need that you have presented. Unfortunately, even with our robust fee waiver program, resources are limited and the financial needs facing so many are significant. While you have certainly demonstrated need, others have demonstrated an even greater need and lack of support and resources. These are very difficult decisions, as almost all applicants for fee waivers demonstrate very significant need. Um, Blah, blah, blah. We must adhere to our evaluation process and criteria to ensure that those with the greatest of need are provided the fee waivers out of fairness to all applicants and as stewards of these limited resources. (laughs) We sincerely regret blah, blah, blah. This is final, final, final. That's what it said. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, Galen. What's up? Well, I just think a couple of thoughts. One is I think they almost want you to explain away the money that you have in your account. They don't want you to say it's not common. It's not typical, something like that. I think they want you to really say, I don't have it anymore or I'm about to not have it. I mean, that's, I guess, what happened for me. And I don't know. I guess when I'm thinking about support, 
my application really demonstrated I didn't have support and I didn't have, I hadn't applied for Medicaid or any kind of government assistance. Um, and I didn't have family that was supporting me. And so I don't know if those things affected it. And like, that's not really indicative of any kind of difference in need. It's just different choices that I had made, but I don't know if that ended up working against her, unfortunately. Oh, because yeah, one of the things that she had said was that she had sent in her Medicaid card. Yeah. I'm <laughs> They're like, at... oh, you have Medicaid. <laughs> You're you, fine. You... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to find my correspondence because I could find everything that I submitted to them, but I didn't see any of my, anything that I got from them, but um, I'm not seeing anything right now. I will say another piece of advice that, so you get a number of free CAS reports along with your application fee waived from basically all schools. And so my thought was, well, I'm already getting so much. I'll just pay the $45 for um, each of the CAS reports. And I was talking, I know you're making that face. That's what Carl said to me too. We were talking in the admissions class and he was like, absolutely not. So I went ahead and uh, sent some emails to ask for the rest of my CAS reports to be waived from the other schools. I mean, that's a $45 email. There's yeah. no, there's nothing there. You're not paying for anything. And then, I mean, that's the thing that to me, when LSAC says, oh no, you know, we have limited, we have to be stewards of these limited funds. It's like, well, wait a second now. Really? Because <laughs> you made the criteria for where you cut off the fee waiver and not fee waiver. It's not like this is outside funding where there's a limited amount of right. money that you're distributing to people. All you're doing is you're deciding not to charge them the exorbitant fees that you charge for stuff. And well, you think my thought is kind of like you were talking about is LSAT going to get with the times or are they going to stay with whatever 7% number that they've been typically giving out? My thoughts would be why aren't they just channeling the money that they are saving by doing the LSAT flex maybe into that? It seems like that would be an adjustment that would, you know, be in COVID times where we have to do this LSAT flex. We're saving money in the administration of it. So simultaneously, so many people are entering poverty and struggling more than they have before. Let's do more. I don't know. And and you add the fact that they got a $5.3 million loan, the, oh, the PPE. Yeah. yeah, the is it PPE or whatever? It Wait, was? no, PPP. What's PPE? Oh, PPP <laughs> is like protective mask. gear. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, the, the PPP loan, which is strange. But anyways, yeah, I mean, presumably that's to protect payroll. But I have no idea why LSAC's payroll was in jeopardy by any means. Yeah. They do have super broken systems, so they have to pay a lot of people to do customer service for all the stuff that's broken. Um, but as long as your revenue keeps coming in, right, how is that any different than from before? And revenue continues to come in because they continue to offer the test. And so I'm perplexed by their supposed, you know, need. They have need? Yeah. <laughs> and they're turning around well, telling people that they, you know, they can't There give. wasn't any decline in the... Um, like in else in like the LSAT prep business, I mean, there's an increase, right, in the number of people who are interested in law school and exactly the LSAT. So yeah, they they didn't right. What was their claim to? Well, whatever. Who knows? Anyways, they, I mean, but you're absolutely right. Forty five dollars is an arbitrary fee. What's the actual cost of that? Well, there is some cost. They had to develop the program and maintain it. So, but what realistically, a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> 
like a dollar for I, each of those? Like, I don't know if you spread out the cost over all the people and I don't yeah. know. Okay. Well, I mean, boy, to sum up here, I don't know that we've gotten any closer to no. figuring out what it is that, you know, qu- that qualifies and what doesn't qualify. The only thing that we're, that we're sure of is that some people do qualify. I think a lot of people get denied immediately and then succeed on appeal. That would be a very, yeah. um, you know, you might think it's mean or whatever, but it would be kind of a smart policy, right? Everybody who applies is immediately denied, but we have an appeals process. So if you're serious and if you, that would make sense. Yeah. I think that's kind of what they used to do for um, accommodations. Accommodations, yeah. yeah. Before they got lost a lawsuit about that. Um, so okay, here's, well, here's a prediction for you: yeah. that someone's going to sue them. Their process is going to be blown up. Everybody's going to see it, and then they're going to be like, "Okay, now everybody can get a fee waiver." <laughs> well, I mean, they can't let everybody have a fee waiver. Well, they not do everybody, but I mean, you know, revenue. But compared to the past, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate. I guess I just wanted to make the point and it seems fairly arbitrary, but the only advice I could give is if it's something about you have this amount in your bank account or any objection that they give to you when they send you back what the problem was and ask you for an appeal, explain it away. Don't just try and say, because I do kind of see why, oh, I don't usually have this money, but I do have this money is not as compelling to them as I don't actually have this money. And that's what I felt like they were asking me for in the appeal process was to say, was there actually some kind of an error here? I'd be careful about what documents you send them in the first place. I mean, don't send them a bank account statement that shows five figures in it. Yeah. Also, let's not commit fraud, but for sure, yes. No, (laughs) I'm not saying to commit fraud, but there's... yeah. They are totally. asking for certain documents and you could think about what you're providing them when you provide them those documents. I mean, if you plan ahead, I think, you know, I mean, probably what happens is people just apply for the fee waiver at the last minute and they're just scrambling to find documents and then the documents turn out to not be in their favor. If you yeah. if you did this three months ahead of time, you'd be able to like send them the bank statement that shows you as legitimately poor, which you actually Mm -hmm. are instead of sending them the bank statement that shows you as artificially rich, which you're not. Well, the other thing is how many times are people sending information that they don't need to send? They think it's going to add to their case, but it's like, look, they asked for X, Y, Z, give them X, Y, Z. Don't say, Oh, and by the way, see, my uncle was going to help me with this thing, but then didn't, it's like, what? No, just, Keep the information as minimal as possible. Because I can see that working against someone where then LSAC is thinking, oh, you actually have someone that could support you, that might support you. This fell through, but I could see those things working against you for sure. You don't know what you're saying. That's ultimately. Yeah. I was really hoping to use this money to help my such and such whatever cousin who, and it's like, they're like, oh, well. No, you should use that money to help yourself and help us yeah. instead. Um, we see this in personal statements all the time. People mm-hmm. include facts that they think are helping them, but the they're actually working for the exact opposite purpose. Um, 
Okay. Can I ask you guys a question actually about, I know this is now I'm monopolizing my time, but I had a question um, as I was doing my personal statement. I got some feedback, one from a law student, one from someone in graduate school, um, but they are a professional writer and it was pretty negative immediately. And they said, you need to completely scrap this. You're boring the reader with how much you're talking about yourself and what you've done. You need to talk more about what you want to do. You need to specifically address like the faculty members. And, and I immediately panicked, but came away from it thinking, okay, this is what they did for public policy grad school or something like that. And I almost just need confirmation about that. (laughs) Totally different. We had recently on the show, um, some college, uh, it was like universal, uh, grad school personal statement advice. And it was clearly tailored toward more research oriented grad school programs. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for, for that type of shit, you need to talk about, Hey, here's my academic areas of interest. Here's the professors that I want to work with. Here are the projects that I'm interested in working on, but lawyers are fungible law school candidates, law school applicants and law schools, in fact, are fungible and everybody knows that. And so when you're writing your law school personal statement, it needs to be about you and what you've done and who you are and what you're bringing to the table and, um, mentioning specific faculty and specific areas of research interest or whatever, you know, maybe at Yale or something, but for 99% of law schools, um, I mean, and we had Anne on the show right. just recently and she was very clear that she's going to submit basically one personal statement to every law school. In some cases she might tweak it if those schools are specifically asking for, you know, why UVA or something like that. But um, that those are exceptions, not the rule. Right. Yeah. Well, along those lines, 99% of lawyers aren't going to push the ball forward. <laughs> They're just going to do their job and work within the law, not change it. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, <laughs> the, it's sad. And I mean, I don't want to break anybody's heart, but like the bulk of law school, what they're, that's like we're churning out new cogs for the machine, you know, it's like, it's, it's mostly worker bees. I mean, it's very smart, very hardworking worker bees, not people who are going to reinvent the wheel. It's mostly people who are going to get in there and grind out these, you know, purchase and sale agreements or whatever it is. Um, okay. Uh, are we clear about all that? Yeah, thanks. I just hope that is a little bit helpful for maybe someone to be cautious about who you're asking and what advice you're taking. And let's listen to the experts. Well, yeah, if it's not specifically law school admissions advice, and even when it is specifically law school admissions advice, there's a lot of that that's bad out there. But universal grad school applications advice just simply does not apply to law school. Law school is a different beast. Perfect. Well, thanks, guys. Kaylin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Kaylin McDaniel is an LSAT demon tutor and teacher and soon to be law school student, although hopefully not too soon. So we can keep her around for a little while. I'll let you guys know. We'll see. But I'm going to go before they start uh, tearing down the floor or something (laughs) upstairs. Sounds good. Thanks, Kaylin. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Yeah. Yep. See ya. 
Ben, you want to uh, tackle this first email on our agenda? Yeah. So this one's about scholarships with a below 25th GPA. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm writing in to just disagree with your claim on the most recent episode the applicants with GPAs below the 25th percentile can't get scholarship money at law schools. Okay. okay. I went to an undergrad school without great inflation. Our average GPA is a 3.1, a 3.6, which is most law schools' 25th percentile, is our top 10%. And only 11 out of around 50,000 students graduated with a 4.0. Yet every year we send students... I know some of them and their stats personally, to the top 14 with scholarships. I also have friends from other schools without great inflation, for example, MIT, some other tech schools, Wellesley, Swarthmore, Reed, uh, formerly U Chicago, and Princeton. And I've seen them outperform their GPAs in terms of admissions and scholarships. Um, Okay. So exceptions to the rule. I also yes. found many examples of lower GPA candidates who still get multiple scholarship offers on LSAT or what is this place? Law school data. Right. Um, here's a 3.4169 who got 1.2 million in scholarships. Several more where that came from when I just opened up different law schools, sort acceptances by GPA, low to high, and check out the scholarship column and sometimes open up those scholarship recipients and see what other schools they got money at. Okay. I mean, one thing that's in the back of my head is like, where are these scholarships coming from? Are they coming from schools that are actually, you know, like below the 25th percentile? I mean, I'm sure this person is checking that out, but I don't know. What I've heard is that scholarships are based on how much a school wants you to come, how much they think you won't come unless you make it cheaper for them. Makes sense that your GPA and other U.S. News and World Report aspects would be a lot of that, but law schools also want need other things, including diverse classes. I've heard some schools implicitly or explicitly save a lot of their scholarship money to recruit underrepresented minorities, so my second counterpoint is that being underrepresented seems to positively impact scholarship offers and help to counteract a subpar GPA. Well, I definitely agree with that last point. I agree with all of this, but I have some thoughts. This, by the way, comes from one of our team members uh, who wanted to be anonymous on the show. And I really appreciate the feedback. We are very open to being corrected here at... Um, thinking LSAT. We, we do uh, some wild speculations from time to time, and uh, not all of those wild speculations are correct. Uh, three points here. She's got three paragraphs. Um, first thing is, as far as schools like Wellesley, Swarthmore, Reed, etc., yes, law schools know that those schools uh, do not have ridiculously inflated grades. And when we look at the data on the 509 reports, we see the 25th percentile, 50th percentile, and 75th percentile for each school. I'm thinking that the people who get the scholarships with low GPAs because they went to Wellesley, Swarthmore, Reed, etc., 
yeah, those are people whose GPA is in the 25th percentile for that school. And there is some room for that because those people are exceptional. I I just, you know, (laughs) I don't want people that I think our advice is normally targeted toward people who went to, you know, um, San Francisco state, not to insult San Francisco state, but it's easy to get good grades at San Francisco state. And if you got bad grades at San Francisco state, you're not going to get a law school scholarship with your 3.0 from San Francisco state, the same way you're going to get a law school scholarship with your 3.0 from MIT. Her point is well taken here that yes, if you did go to one of these exceptional schools that have exceptionally low average GPAs, then law schools are going to be more willing to make exceptions for you, especially if you have an I, a high LSAT score. We, we need to, we should think about this. I mean, maybe there is some way to incorporate this into the scholarship estimator. By the way, that's lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. If you want to play around with some numbers. Do you wait, hold up. And though. look at one, what some scholarship estimates this. might look like. Yes. So the, the numbers that we get on the 509 reports, the 25th percentile, the 50th yes. and 75th, right? They are for the, the class as a whole. And that class if it's a higher ranked school, then presumably it's going to have more of these exceptional schools. And so those numbers are naturally going to come down or whatnot to accommodate for that. So I'm not saying they're going to come all the way down because you're going to have a bunch of schools in there that aren't exceptional or don't have great inflation or whatever. But like those numbers that we're getting are their class. So yeah, it still does. Right. No, if you have your, you know, you had the, you were like your, the valedictorian of MIT and you had a 3.2 that still does lower the 70, uh, the 25th percentile um, LSAT score or uh, sorry, GPA for whatever school admits you. And I think Um, that school, if it's a highly ranked school is going to have more of you. More people like you. Yes, but there are still so few of you in the population that they, you know, well, I guess what I'm saying is they can make exceptions for up to 25% of their school. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's the, it's the person who's exactly at the 25th percentile who sets their 25th percentile GPA. Sure. If they're going to make an exception for you, you could have a 2.1 and they could make an exception for you. Yeah. Right? Because it's not going to actually change the 25th percentile. Not not to say that they actually would do that because they want you to have as good of grades as you could possibly have gotten at your school. Mm-hmm. And if they know that 3.2 is like an outrageously good GPA for your school, then you, know, you, you might be the one that they want to make an exception for. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is they're just not going to make exceptions for people who don't go to these kinds of schools. And I think that people who go to these kinds of schools are in the dramatic minority. Sure. Right. Because, I mean, there's plenty of great schools that do inflate grades. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Second point about the law school data thing. The only thing I want to say about that is that that's self-reported data and we have to take a big old grain of salt when we look at that stuff. 
you know, so it sounds like she's clicking around from school to school to school going, well, look at this person who had a 3.4 and got $1.2 million in scholarships or look at this school because she's, she's looking at the law schools and saying, sorting the acceptances and checking out the scholarship columns and seeing that some of the people had low GPAs and still got scholarships. Well, I, I think two things at once here. One, it could be that these are exceptional applicants and there are going to be exceptions made for exceptional folks. Two, it's all self-reported data. So as far as we know, half of that could be bullshit anyway. Well, wait, what I don't understand is even if it's legit, the 3.4 could be above the 25th percentile. I realize she's saying that most law schools, 25th percentile is 3.6, but that's, that is that even true? <laughs> right. We speak broadly on the show, Ben. We're talking to a broad audience. On average, people are average. And so lots of times we make statements or claims on the show that are aimed at the typical applicant. If we say you're not going to get a scholarship with a 3.1, what we mean is you're normally not going to get a scholarship with a 3.1. But yes, there are exceptions for exceptional candidates from exceptional schools. The last point as far as... Um, Underrepresented, uh, underrepresented minorities. We know for sure that's a thing. We haven't yet figured out how to account for that in the scholarship estimator because we don't know. It's hard to put numbers on how much of a thing it is. But yes, we absolutely know that law schools do have different admission standards for underrepresented, underrepresented, I don't know why I can't say that word today, minorities. And that's true even in in the scholarship realm because they genuinely do want to have diverse classes and it's real hard for them to get diverse classes if they only use LSAT and GPA. And so, yeah, URMs tend to kind of filter up because there's so few of them. I mean, by definition, they are underrepresented in law school. Mm-hmm. So there are a few of them available and law schools want to be diverse. And so, yes, they will be more generous with admissions and they will also be more generous with scholarships to try to admit you. Um, I have asked our team to investigate putting a check mark on our scholarship estimator where you can check the box for URM and then have it tweak the numbers. But uh, at best, we're going to be guessing how much that tweak is actually worse, uh, worth. We do have sort of an, I feel like we have an upper bound. Remember that video okay. from like one of the very first <laughs> episodes? That was like episode th- four. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I, I feel like the number he said was, you're not going to go beyond five points. Like five LSAT points. LSAT points. And I didn't talk about GPA and I don't remember, or maybe he did, but I don't remember. But I just remember that number sticking in my head. Like he was saying that some URMs are applying to schools that are maybe 10 points outside of their range and they're going, Oh, it's okay. I'm a URM. He's like, look, the school isn't going to go that far. Right. Right. Well, as far as the scholarship, um, as far as the scholarship estimator is concerned, I want to be clear that it is an estimator. It looks like a calculator and maybe sometimes we slip up and refer to it as a calculator, but it's an estimator. And in order to be good 
scientists, Ben, um, I've asked the team to basically be explicit about our assumptions, right? Because that's the best we can do. Make some assumptions, do some calculations. But I would like for us to be straightforward about what those assumptions are and also be open to changing those assumptions because all we're really trying to do is get as close to truth as we can, right? We just wanted to make a tool that would be useful to people. And one of those assumptions is that what is true for last year is going to be true for this year, and that certainly could go out the window. But at the very least, (laughs) my hope is that if you were thinking about a school or maybe you weren't thinking about a school and you put your numbers into the estimator and it says, hey, we think you might get some money here or maybe full tuition or whatever, at least that idea in your head is a negotiating piece, right? Like at yeah. least start thinking about schools that might give you money. We, it's an estimator, so we don't know for sure, but that's what you should be pursuing. And, you know, a lot of this is going to hinge on your asking, but hopefully this will motivate yeah. you to ask. The purpose of the tool is to give you an idea what, what range of schools you should be applying to. So, you know, you're not going to know your actual numbers, you know, your actual offers until you get your actual offers and then renegotiate those offers. So it's meant to be a a place where you can go to put in your LSAT, put in your GPA, click submit and get an idea of the kinds of scholarships that you might be able to get at the kinds of schools. And it's necessarily a rough tool. We'll make it better over time. Um, but it's not real dollars. It's estimated dollars and your results necessarily will vary. We're trying to get as close as we close as we can to the truth. Yeah. Okay. This email you want to, I'll wait, I guess it's my turn. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Hello, big pod fan. I noticed there's a page on the index with all your guys's book recs. That's great. Exclamation point. What other books do you guys recommend? Can Ben have a book club? Love all of Nathan's film and TV recommendations too. Any new shows you recommend, Nate? Thanks, y'all. Sam. Uh, any new book recommendations, Ben? Um, no. <laughs> Not right now. Ben's been too busy working on Demon 2.0. Yeah, that's all I do. I mean, uh, yeah. That's it. That I don't have any good recommendations right now. Um, I am going to attempt to read. This was given to me by my neighbor last night, and it is The Falcon and the Snowman. Are what you familiar the with this book? Nope. The Falcon and the Snowman. It is a true espionage story. Okay. Set in Southern California, which I spent a lot of time down there, so I am an interested in reading about LA. They made a movie out of this a while back, but, uh, I've heard it's really great and an easy read. So I'm going to be reading the Falcon and the snowman. I can recommend it based on my neighbor's recommendation. Cool. People around here have loved it. As far as TV shows, I haven't been watching anything new. Um, I've been watching the Dodgers, uh, in their playoff run. So that's all I've been up to lately, but we will continue to, uh, Sorry, Sam. <laughs> we'll continue to give our wrecks <laughs> when they pop up. Um, nothing, uh, nothing at the moment. Okay. Um, you want to take this next one? Yeah. So this one's subject is just starting out. 
I know you probably get this a lot, but I noticed there's a ton of different things now in the demon than when I did a free trial last year. Wow, welcome back. I just signed up for Demon Live after looking at your website and socials, and I'm super excited. I've never studied before. I know it's important to do a diagnostic, but what do you do after that? Or what do I do after that? What section do you recommend I focus on first? How do I make sure I keep my skills up, especially since I'm planning on taking the LSAT next year? Thanks, Jay. I like the first step of doing a diagnostic. Yep. People are really afraid of doing that, but you got to just rip off the bandaid and just do it. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to do that yet. I'm not ready. I got to watch another lesson. No, you got to do a problem, figure out why you failed and then do another one. That's how you learned how to speak. You got to get rid of the stigma around failing, right? Yes. You got to try things and fail. Failure is your first step to success. Yeah. And then Jay says, um, what section do you recommend I focus on first? There's, I think there's two things wrong with that. Yeah. The first is you probably shouldn't be focusing on one section at a time. You should be dividing your study evenly over the three different scored section types. Yep. Broadly, right? Yeah. Base rate. Our base assumption is one third each, probably reading comp, LR, and games. We get this question a Maybe lot. Maybe a little more. Yeah. yeah. I and I think it's because people like have this like oh, I'm going to get this section down and then I'm going to turn it to the next section. And it's <laughs> no like, such thing. it's like working out. It'd be like running for exactly. a triathlon for a long time. He's finally getting fast enough to be like, okay, now I'm going to start working yeah. on swimming. What? And then you're going to lose yeah. your running ability. No. Right. Should I work on my offense or defense first? <laughs> you know, like I'm going to get super good at offense. Yeah. Then I'll start working. No, it's, you're going to just play basketball, get good at everything, all, yeah. all different aspects of the game. It's yeah. more fun that way. And I mean, it's just broadly, you shouldn't be focusing on any one area first. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's some of our very worst students come to us with that. I don't know where they got that idea, but they're like, I've decided that I'm going to study the logical reasoning for three months. And then once I have that, then I'm going to move on to the other stuff. And they're scoring like 130. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> You've got room for improvement in every section. And you should yeah. start making, you know, basic improvement in all areas is your fastest route to success. But they show up um, and they're like, yeah, I got to work. I really got to work on um, games, but I'm fine with logical reasoning and reading comp. And you're like, oh, where are you scoring? <laughs> well, I scored a 148. Well, you. That means you <laughs> You're not have fine to, to be struggling in any everywhere. section. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, the other thing is, Jay, the whole point of doing your diagnostic is to figure out your weaknesses. And I don't know, maybe you're a natural at this shit. Maybe you're going to ace the reading comp and logical reasoning on your first attempt and just suck at the games. I mean, that was my profile. Right. I mean, I... Some people do score like 170 something on their first test. And those types of people sometimes do have just, oh, you don't know how to do the games yet. Yeah. Okay. But that is a result that, you know, of your practice test that, that, that diagnostic can give you that information. We're not going to just tell you out of the blue, which section to work on. You basically need to work on your weaknesses more than your strengths. Yeah. So that's the point of doing diagnostics, figure out what you're struggling with, figure out where you're failing and then correct those failures. How do I make sure I keep my skills up, especially since I'm planning on taking the LSAT next year? 
novices sometimes have this idea that they need to schedule their LSAT nine months from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes no sense. I, Jay, you have the best LSAT prep available. So why don't you figure out when you're exactly going to take your first LSAT after a month or two of prep? I mean, work really hard, do a bunch of diagnostics, figure out where you're at. And then as soon as your LSAT, your practice scores get where you want them, then you need to start taking the official test. So I don't know why you're deciding that you need to, you know, need to take the test way out next year. Yeah, you start taking practice tests once a week, maybe once every other week. And then when you get those scores, you start seeing them and you say, okay, these scores are close to where I want to be officially. And then you sign up for the test. Then you go take, you keep studying until that test. It's only going to be like two months away at most at that point. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Jay. Uh, Welcome to the demon. Please come say hi to me in class. I'm teaching every Tuesday, Thursday night and some other times as well. Ben has office hours on Tuesdays. Come say hi to us, but also come say hi to Kaylin and uh, all the rest of our awesome team. All right. Uh, We have an update from a happy demon user. Hi, Matt and team. Oh, I guess this email came into Matt. Um, another one of our LSAT demon teachers and tutors. I wanted to shoot you. Uh, I wanted to shoot the LSAT demon team, a quick email and tell y'all how happy I am. I've made the switch. You may remember an earlier email, uh, where I stated I'd scored 161 three times in a row using Khan Academy. What I didn't say in that email is that this is my second time attempting to study for the LSAT. My first time was in 2018, the summer before my final year of college, I ended up not taking the test after months of unsuccessful studying. Uh, About two months after the pandemic hit this year, I decided it was time to try again, but soon realized that I was getting nowhere with Khan Academy materials. From May to September, I only ever increased one point. Yikes. Jesus, that's a long ass time for no improvement. Yeah. My weakest section then and now has always been logic games. I could only ever attempt two games at most during a test and only ever got a game entirely right a single time. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I got to stop right there. This user, Mal, you were beating your head against the wall. Yeah. You. The problem is that you were attempting two games. You needed to be only attempting one game. Yep. You need one perfect game. And and if that takes the whole 35 minutes, then fine. But you need one perfect game. Once you can do one perfect game, then you can start doing a second game. Yeah. So Mel was skimming the surface here, trying, you know, diligently, right? This is a very earnest student who's trying to study for months or years for this test. But she's... <laughs> Because she's trying to do more, she's mm-hmm. so worried about, oh, I can only do two games. I got to hurry. So she's doing two games poorly, and she's never going to get good enough at the games that she can actually do them accurately and then eventually quickly. Mm-hmm. She's trying to do speed before accuracy, which is 100% wrong. After studying mostly games an hour or two a day, most days of the week for six weeks with the LSAT demon, with a handful of LR and RC thrown in, I've finally scored a 170 on a practice test for the first time ever. I'm not going to say all of these numbers here, Mm -hmm. but um, before LSAT Demon, 
It was uh, 20 and 22 on LR, 22 on RC, and 12 on games. Yeah. First practice test after the Demon, 25 and 22 on LR, so a little bump there. 25 on reading comp, little bump there. And then 17 on games, <laughs> so big bump there. Yeah. Which is what you would expect if you study games every day for six weeks. Yeah, I think you could probably start getting one more game correct, and that's what she did. I plan to keep using Demon Premium to prepare for the January test. Oh, hey, quick. I think a one Quick note here. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> to go back to your point, check out her first sentence. Oh, the only logic game questions I got wrong were for the game I didn't get to within the time limit. Yeah. So that's... she sw- switched her mentality there, which is great. <laughs> I, get, I get students all the time, you know, who are like – they want to pat themselves on the back and they're like, Hey, so look, I mean, I did, I, I only missed one on that game and I only missed one on that game and I, I'm doing good. Right. And I'm like, no, that's not good. That's, that's really pretty shitty. Like yeah. if it was a rule substitution question that you skipped, then fine. But if you just missed a random question in the middle of a game, four out of five ain't good or five out of six ain't good. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an indication that you're, skimming the surface, being too frantic, not going deep enough, not really not really doing the work. If you're and doing the probably work, getting lucky on some of those other game questions. Oh yeah. Like people who talk about Absolutely. oh it's probably probably D because I think T is probably mm-hmm. gonna be sec- I'm like, we don't talk about probability. No. <laughs> In the game. Right. Yeah. Oh I think this could work. No, it's not it could work. It's which one is the fucking answer. Yeah. One of them is 100% answers the question and four of them 100% don't. And you have to get all the way to that solution where you're like, oh yeah, no, put, you put a gun to my head. I'm sure this is the answer. I know that that's the answer. Um, that's a good point, Ben. For everyone you miss, there's another one that you half-assed and got right. And lawyers aren't in the business of half-assing things. Okay, I plan to keep using Demon Premium to prepare for the January test. I think a 173 or even a 175 is within reach, especially if I could get to the point where I complete the logic games section with the same level of accuracy. I think Mel needs to be more greedy here. Okay. I think Al, I think Mel needs to plan on perfect on the games. Mm-hmm. That's shocking sometimes to students when you say that to them. You're like, hey. But I mean, the truth is to score 175, people just don't score 175 without perfect games. It's much harder to achieve perfection on reading comp and logical reasoning than it is on the games. If you're going to score perfectly on any of the sections, it's probably the games. Um, I would be willing to wager that over 50% of the people who score 175 scored perfectly on their games. Mm-hmm. That's a safe bet. I think you make money on that bet all day. Mm-hmm. So if you're really, uh, Mel, if you're trying to get into the 99th percentile on your LSAT, you need to be in the 99th percentile on games. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the 90, I bet the 90th percentile on games is perfect. Hmm. Really? Yeah. yeah. Like that's, it's kind of like math on the GMAT and stuff. There's a lot of people who get perfect. Mm -hmm. So then the, Mm -hmm. yeah, perfect brings down the percentile. Yeah. Well, it's the section on which you can most frequently know you were correct. Mm -hmm. 
that's why it's the section on which people most frequently score perfectly because mm-hmm. not only did they score perfectly but they know they scored perfectly like they yeah. walk out of the test going oh well i know i didn't miss any on the games yeah that's the point you can get to and so mal even though games was your worst section you can turn that into your best section and that is what i in fact did games was my worst section by far and by the time i took the official test i was like yeah i'm i'm gonna score perfectly on the games because you can yeah I've been working toward this score in some way since 2018, but I never saw the level of improvement I've seen in the last six weeks. Hmm. That feels good, Mal. Thank you for telling us. Um, This sort of milestone is exactly what I needed at this time, and it's particularly meaningful under such weird life circumstances as COVID-19. I attribute my improvement to, one, the steadiness and stability provided to be provided to me by my full-time job. That's a really interesting point. Well, I think it removes the background uh, stress, right? Background noise of fear. Yeah. And two, the LSAT demon. Well, but it also, Ben, it it also gives lie to this idea of I'm going to take time off of work. Mm. I'm going to like quit my job Mm -hmm. to study for the LSAT. We we see plenty of students who are very successful, uh, who have full time job or full time school or other obstacles. We don't want you to study four hours a day for the LSAT. We want you to give us your best one hour, you know, or your best ninety minutes. Yeah. And sometimes having a full time job makes you structure your life in such a way that you're like, oh well. I know I have an hour before work, or I know I have an hour at lunch, or I know I have an hour after work. Mm -hmm. And then if you just kind of build it into your routine, then you can chip away at it Mm -hmm. slow and steady. And I think it also can help people avoid burnout and avoid uh, stressing about it too much. You know, like you don't stress out about your hour workout. It's just like, that's part of your routine and you, you know, you have 23 other hours of the day, but then you have your hour workout. And if you, when you build it in as a routine, then it becomes less of a drama. You know, it's, I I think it can be harder to, to work out or harder to study if you have the entire day open ahead of you, (laughs) you know, you spend, I sometimes spend three hours figuring out where I'm going to go to lunch or whatever. Yeah. You know, if I have too much time on my hands, and uh, so that's just, I just it's an interesting point that Mel's making there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have lots of people who succeed um, with with full time obligations. I'm very grateful for the whole team at LSAT Demon, especially Ben's explanation videos. Please let him know that he is a wonderful teacher, and I enjoy feeling like I am in class with him. Wow! Thanks. That's great. Again, thank you for all you guys do to provide effective and affordable study materials. Best wishes and have a happy holiday season. Best, Mel. P.S. I would also love to hear Ben and Nathan's thoughts on how to keep up the study success. My planned test date is in January. Any advice for Mel on that point? It sounds like you're going down the right path. My only concern is like people doing too much and then burning out, but... Sounds like Mel has the right amount of study time and everything. So 
That seems unlikely. Sounds like her job is going to protect her from mm -hmm. that, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. My advice would be to keep hammering on the games. Games is still your lowest yeah. section, and games can be perfect. You can get to 173 or 175 mel just by improving your games. You have very little room to improve your LR, very little room to improve your RC. One more point in each of those sections between now and January and one entire additional logic game. Yeah. And I think she can do it. I think if she masters one game a day mm -hmm. between now and the test, you know, two sections a week between now and the test. Yeah. I think, you know, she might get to that point and I hope she'll write us back if she does, but I think she can get to that point where she scores her first perfect section on the games. That's always a, that's always a milestone, right? That people reach and it's, they're always like super excited. Like, I can't believe I scored perfectly on the games. My first test, I scored five points and now I scored 23. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know you, you can get there. So hopefully Mel can set that as a goal, you know, for, um, November or December. Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to be directly related to her 173, 175 or higher. Uh, we have DH's personal statement, Ben, she, or he or she also wrote in with a complaint about the LSAT flex. Um, you want to start here with this email? Sure. Hi, Ben, Nathan, and team. First, I want to express frustration with my October LSAT flex. During my test, my proctor disconnected and the proctoring session ended. I was on the third question of the second section and the testing window disappeared and the proctor, proctor chat box popped up telling me that Jesus had disconnected. That's Jesus, Ben. It's got the little <laughs> tilde on the U. Oh, I didn't see that. That's not a tilde. I don't know what that I is. I thought my screen accent. is dirty. Okay. Jesus <laughs> had... Well, I kind of like Jesus, um, but... Jesus had Jesus has disconnected. <laughs> you were praying Sorry. and now you don't have any more help. <laughs> yeah. He's okay. disconnected and Proctor and that Proctor U had ended this session. I couldn't chat with Proctor U in the chat box anymore, and after a minute or so my test screen popped back up and the timer was still running. Hmm. So I did my best to try and finish. I spent about four hours trying to get things resolved with Proctor U after the test. And they finally agreed that there was a problem with my test and I'd have to contact LSAC. LSAC said they'd have to review the recording to make sure it was not a problem on my end. Which begs the question, if you have to review the recording anyways, why do we even need live proctors? <laughs> <laughs> Which we've, we've talked about on the show. I believe that was a listener suggestion. He yeah. said, hey, why don't they just, in college, we use ProctorU and what they do is they record our test sessions mm -hmm. And then if there's any weird shit, they can review it later. And then that removes this whole drama with the connection to the live proctors. Yeah. Hmm. LSAC eventually let me retest on Friday. But when I went to do the retest, LSAC never sent ProctorU the allowable materials list. So that took about an hour to get sorted out. It's the same allowable materials list for all of these tens of thousands of people who are taking the flex. I don't understand. Why is that yeah. an issue? It's weird. 
My retest proctor interrupted me twice during my retest. Once, justifiably, because my face was not completely in the frame for a few moments when I was doing a logic game. I don't even know if that's justifiable. It's kind of silly. The second time, I have no idea why he asked if I could hear him. (laughs) Anyways, it was a much better experience than the first time. Hear him? Can you hear me? Why? Yeah, just so Jesus just pops in like, can you hear me? Yeah. And you have to be like, yes, Jesus, I can hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Can Can I continue my test now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right, so DH continues. Secondly, I am sending in my personal statement for slaughter. I asked my husband if I should send it in, and he responded with, do you enjoy crying? <laughs> Some of the best <laughs> advice I've ever received has been cry, regain composure, try again. I've never heard that advice before. Mm-mm. I'd appreciate any feedback. Feel free to use my name or redact any names that you'd need to for the podcast. So we don't need to redact them, but um, apparently it's already been redacted. So you're good. Hail to the demon. Okay. As opposed to praise the demon. We'll take it. You want to read this? Yeah, thanks, uh, DH. I think that that's a really good uh, attitude you have to, uh, yeah, whatever. There's going to be some moments of suffering in life. And expect that those are going to happen and regain composure and try again. That's great. So that really is the environment that we want to foster in... um, our classes in the LSAT demon and for sure with the show, nobody's perfect. We're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. Ben makes mistakes. Um, in our classes, especially we really want a culture of you're going to fuck up. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to tell us you made the mistake so that we can help you fix the mistake. But it's not just this, like we're smarter than you. How, how could you possibly have made that mistake? That's not, that's not what it's about. <laughs> if, if you were perfect, you wouldn't be in class. So, um, okay. And if you were perfect, you probably wouldn't be sending us this personal statement. So brace yourself. Yeah. It takes humility to ask for help, but so much better. Than uh, the absolutely. End. <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah. You know, and have we ever seen a personal statement where we were like, this is complete trash. There's nothing to even work with here. I think we've, even with the very worst ones, we've always been able to say, Hey, why don't you focus on this issue? Mm -hmm. This seems interesting. Why don't you talk about that? And it's not a complete failure. If we tell you to trash everything, but one sentence, that personal statement, despite its failure, helped you find a topic, right? That's huge. People struggle with finding a topic for months sometimes, right? In 2010, United Airlines and Continental Airlines announced their merger. Okay, I don't like it. It's about two airline companies, not about you. I'm I'm glad that it's short and that we can probably get into your statement quickly, but I'm still like, how does this relate to you? I further don't like it that it is exactly 10 years ago. It's a long time ago. I'm not saying you can't talk about things 10 years ago, but 
the law school is getting the person that you are today, not the person that you were 10 years ago. And even if you're going to tell me about some kick-ass thing that you did 10 years ago, I'm still going to be wondering what you did since then. Yep. So I'm very skeptical that this is the place we want to start. Uh, she's using two spaces, Ben, two spaces between the sentences, actually two spaces in some instances and one space in other instances, Yeah. which by the way, is another really good reason why you don't use two spaces. Yeah. People who use two spaces sometimes accidentally use one or three people who use one space tend to more consistently use one space. The modern standard is one space between sentences. It looks weirder and weirder when I see two spaces. Yep. For years following the merge, contract-bound work groups were kept separated under their parent company. Still about other people, the companies, the work groups. What about you? In 2016, I joined United as a flight attendant working under a continental contract on only continental aircraft. It's about you, but it's like the boringest possible detail. Yeah. Who gives a shit? No, Continental doesn't exist anymore, first of all. And the, histo the historical development of how you, uh, United and Continental merged is so much less interesting than, you know, I've never read a personal statement from a flight attendant before, but I would love to read a personal statement from a flight attendant. Mm -hmm. Flight attendants, that's a surprisingly big job. You know, a, a lot of people think that flight attendant is like sky waitress, mm -hmm. but flight attendant, those, those people are critical components of a very big industry. Mm-hmm. They, they have like security clearances. They are responsible for on-time departures, like the, the efficiency with which they manage the onboarding and offboarding process mm -hmm. affects the, the on-time rating of the airlines. They are customer service agents. Like they are, I mean, that's the people you actually see, right? You don't really talk to the pilots. You're don't they also have to You're enforce to the, like all the rules and the FDA? Well, or not yeah, the FDA. and there are <laughs> security <laughs> FAA regulations that there are security officers that have to make really they have to make really smart decisions. You remember when we had that uh, personal statement from the cop recently, mm -hmm. the the like hospital cop, and that sort of like discretion that they have to employ mm -hmm. like this person is becoming a problem we are forty thousand feet in the air yeah what do we do <laughs> am i gonna have to are we gonna have to land this plane so that we can get this person kicked off so that we can get them arrested so that we you know delaying 150 other people or am i gonna find a way to diffuse this problem that's all so interesting. And I like I have a, for a flight attendant, I would love to hear about any of those stories. Yeah. The merger of your two airlines doesn't. Anyway, 
2018, the two groups of flight attendants ratified a joint agreement. Again, really not about you. You had a vote probably, but you didn't do that. And we began flying together under radically different work rules. It was throughout the negotiation and subsequent implementation process that I realized the importance of my union, the Association of Flight Attendants, AFA. I hate this theme, Ben. Yeah. I hate it. The fact that you're in a union and unions have big disputes doesn't mean that you have any special, you had no role in the contract negotiation. You don't even have any special insights. I mean, yeah, yeah, you were in a union and you went through this merger, but there's a million people who like, not all of these other flight attendants are now going to naturally go to law school. Mm -hmm. So I just don't buy this. We see this a lot. Pretty common mistake, I think. Notice how she's talking about her mindset. Mm -hmm. I realized the importance of my union. In that one sentence, you're saying you previously didn't realize the importance of your union. So you're naive. But you're also just talking about like, oh, now you recognize the importance of your union. Who gives a shit? What? (laughs) So what? That's not a compelling reason for me to admit you to my law school. Imagine you could have a yeah. It's like it's like what if someone wrote in their personal statement, "I came to realize the importance of checks and balances." It's like right. Okay, you were like you're part of this society. You're part of this group. This lofty rhetoric about the law. I realized that contracts were really it's like shut up. You don't Until you've gone to law school, you actually don't know anything that you think you know anyway. Mm -hmm. And, and you're missing such an opportunity here because I would love to hear about you kicking ass as a flight attendant. Yeah. Um, my contract determined not only how much money I would make, but also when I could sleep, when and where I could eat, when I could schedule doctor appointments, I tried to make the best of a worse situation So I decided to get involved. You haven't convinced me that this is a bad situation, though. I mean, you're in a union. You just said radically different work rules, but are they You didn't say what they were. Radically different how? I mean, worse. Worse. Tried to make the best of a worse situation. Situation. It's a very awkward phrase anyway, so it yeah. just needs to be cut. But this, you know, another big mistake, and she is running just parallel to this mistake, is I was involved in a litigation, and mm-hmm. therefore I decided to become a lawyer. Yep. I haven't seen one of those that I thought was any good at all. Yeah. It's just awful. It's always complaining, whining, oversharing, and pretending to be a lawyer when you're not. So I think we can cut pretty much everything up to this point. If she wants to talk about her actual involvement, if that actual involvement is interesting, then maybe, maybe, but probably, 
Probably not. The AFA well, reserve. Even if ahead. it ends up being sorry, even if it ends up being interesting, this is a classic like buildup, right? Like then I was hired, I was right. promoted. Like let's just talk about what you did when yeah. you were involved. Well, Say, she started in, in 2010 when United mm-hmm. and Continental announced their merger. But I mean, boy, the Wright brothers in 18 whatever, you know, like, she could have gone back even further if she had wanted to (laughs) like if she's actually involved in a labor negotiation she could just start with the part where she's involved in the labor negotiation exactly we we know that airplanes exist and we know that airlines exist and we know that flight attendants have unions and we know that unions have labor disputes and you know yeah so this is one of those where write three pages and then cut out the first paragraph or two or three until you get to the actual beginning of your story. One other thing here. We've talked about revoking semicolon privileges for the past, what, 100 episodes? Yes. Why do people still use them? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I tried to make the best of a worse situation, semicolon, so, comma, I decided to get involved. She should have cut. It should just say, I decided to get involved. Yep. All that other bullshit needs to go, including especially the semicolon. Yeah. Semicolon mm-hmm. privileges revoked once again. They're We're not revoked. saying it to the individual writing into the show. We're saying it <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> You're not allowed to use it. You're not allowed to use them. I revoke myself frequently. I still do overuse semicolons, <laughs> but I write it and I look at it and I go, really, dude, do you really need that? Could that have just yep. been a period? Mm. Mm-hmm. Or could half of this just be deleted anyway? Mm-hmm. Gone. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the AFA Reserve Committee chairperson in the Washington, D.C. Council trained me as a reserve committee volunteer. Okay. That's what someone else did. What did you do? Yeah. You received training. (laughs) Right. And it's as a reserve committee volunteer. I mean, that kind of makes me think, oh, you didn't really do anything though, right? Like you're like on call if necessary. You're on reserve to volunteer. (laughs) And what did you do? You got some training. I think this whole first paragraph can go. I don't see any reason to keep any of it. Okay. Second paragraph with the new contract implementation. I hate sentences that start with with. Yeah. It's a with, with this good weather. Yeah. With the impending doom. (laughs) I think we have a rebuttable presumption here. Yep. That your sentences should never start with with. Yep. Um, It's on you to prove to me why you need to start that sentence with with. And until you can give me a good reason why you need to, the default is going to be just don't do that. Well, if you force yourself to use a different word like after or because, it also forces you to change the rest of that phrase, right? Like after, well, here actually you could do it. I think after or because would both be better because they say something with doesn't say shit. It's like concurrent. Well, (laughs) right. It's with means like correlation. 
Yeah. But was it causation or was it before or after? Or was it like, could you say something more interesting than with? Yeah. Okay. With the new contract implementation, I was converted to reserve status space, sad little dash space <laughs> on call 24 hours per day, comma, 18 days per month space, sad little dash space. People need to learn the M dash, Ben. Um, the uh, keyboard shortcut on a Mac is control command dash. No. Mm, uh, I think it's option control dash. Yeah. I When I'm typing, I do it naturally. Sorry. It's, I had exactly the wrong keys. It's shift option dash on a Mac and it creates mm. that nice big M dash. And when you use the M dash like that, you don't put spaces around it. And that's what you meant to do here. And everybody needs to start doing that in their writing. It's a, I love an M dash. Oh, um, don't say that. I know. Sorry. We're going to get like <laughs> M dashed statements. Yeah. They are. I love them too. They, they have a good purpose, especially in sentences that are longer than normal, but maybe rightfully so for whatever reason. And it allows you to organize the information, but never, ever parentheses, by the way, but M dashes do have a place. Um, but you can't use the sad little dash and you don't use spaces. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, what does this sentence say? (laughs) With the new contract implementation, I was converted to reserve status on call 24 hours per day, 18 days per month. To work flights when United needs me. That's what on call is. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I'm a little bit tainted here because I have a lot of pilot buddies. And when they're on reserve, I know that they almost never get called. And I don't know. I do think that the reader skeptically, naturally, sounds like you were, Ben. You're like, oh, yeah, well, you're on call. But... You're on mm-hmm. call. Did she need to say 24 hours per day? <laughs> By the way, 18 days per month means that she has 12 or 13 days per month where she's definitely not on call, which would be yeah. completely off. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many days a week do people in law firms work? How many days so, per week seven. do lawyers work? <laughs> It's not uncommon to to work seven days. I, I think I've told you on the show before, right? Like my first year working as a legal writing consultant, having decided not to go to a law firm, and then having my friend call me, no, text me, I can't remember, on Christmas Day, and was like, oh, I can't do X, Y, Z, I'm at the office. And I was like, that sucks. See ya. I'm opening presents. I am going to give an opinion right now, which might break DH's heart. But I mean it as a, I mean it as a, a positive thing. I think flight attendants have it really, really good. I'm not saying it's easy work by any means, but flight attendants have pretty flexible schedules for the most part. They have pretty interesting work at least more interesting than most lawyers. I think they are paid pretty damn well. They have amazing 
benefits, including the just unreal travel benefits that they have. And I want DH to seriously consider whether she should actually be pursuing law school. I <laughs> like if she thinks being on call 24 hours a day, 18 days a month is, you know, taxing enough that it merits mentioning in her law school personal statement. I think she has no idea what the life of a lawyer is like. Yeah. Wild speculation and DH could have all sorts of good reasons and I'm not trying to crush your dreams. I'm just telling you, I think you have it pretty damn good. And I am skeptical that you're going to end up with something better via law school. This might be a grass is always greener type of a situation. Anyway, she's on call on reserve. As a union volunteer, I am on call outside of my normal reserve days to answer questions and concerns from fellow flight attendants. I read and monitor the assignment preferencing reports and crew scheduling assignments to reserves. I also file grievances, communicate with scheduling managers, and explain contract legalities. Mm, be careful. Mm. <laughs> the two people who have been to law school here, me and Ben, we don't feel like we are capable of explaining contract legalities to anyone. I have been to law school. I got A's, I think, in contracts. I don't know shit. So it is grating when someone who has not been to law school talks about explaining the legalities of anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could explain what you think, you know, whatever you did some training and you, you can tell people what the union says your rights are. That's fine. But you got to stay away from this. I'm already a lawyer kind of talk. Yeah. It's, it's too common. I'm not talking about you in particular, DH. It's just that it's so common that I guarantee it's grading for someone who reads thousands of these. Uh, okay. I, I like, um, I think you agree, Ben. I like that she's saying what she does. She's using, I do this, I do that yeah. a lot. Yep. Um, these things are legal adjacent, which is good. Um, the three parties, flight attendants, management, and schedulers. Shortly after joining the reserve committee, I noticed the union lacked any data related to how many reserve flight attendants are currently assigned properly according to contract legalities. There's that Ugh. super obnoxious term again. Um, don't say that, please. <laughs> this data could be vital not only in resolving in-the-moment contract violations – but also in future contract improvements. There's a weird um, tense shift or tense problem there yeah. because I'm assuming that she is going to solve this problem. She's like talking in the past as if there's a problem that's Well, she's talking solved. about it as if it's still a problem, right? The data yeah. could be vital. No, you should have said this data would or maybe could have been or something like that, but – or you yeah. could have just said, we needed this data in order to do this. So therefore I did this. My biggest, 
issue here is that she needs to get to the, I did this part. Yep. Also this whole, like in the moment contract violations in future contract improvements, I feel like she's trying really hard to drop legal terms to associate herself with the law. Yeah. And I, it's a, it's, it's, it's funny too, because I think if she would have told me about stuff that she probably considers like low, low level stuff, Mm -hmm. but her resolving disputes with problem passengers in the air or her um, getting the passengers on board as quickly as possible while also smiling and joking and laughing and making everybody happy and comfortable. Those types of things. Checks. They have a flight flight checklist, right? Whatever else they have to do at the same time. The, all that shit is, I think flight attendants are badasses. That's one thing I learned a lot from my days flying back and forth between, um, LA and San Francisco when I, in the, in the before COVID times, when I used to do that, I had super great respect for flight attendants. I think that they're awesome. And I think she could be telling me this whole thing of her volunteering with her union and then trying to drop in legal terms and stuff is so much less impressive than the actual work she did as a flight attendant to me. Um, I created a data collection project comprised of two parts. The first was a database of calls received, which identifies, there's a verb tense problem again, the first was, and then she goes to identifies. So it goes past tense and then present tense Mm -hmm. identifies trends in the scheduling process. I include this information in monthly meetings with company representatives and dispute resolutions. What? You're meeting with company representatives and also meeting with dispute resolutions? Doesn't make sense. Who? No. The second was a data collection project of reserve assignments slash releases to use in monthly meetings and long-term contract negotiations. What is she doing, Ben? I don't know. But again, it's like <clears throat> too much buildup too. Like I created a data collection project. What? Like you're trying to make it a big thing. I collected data. I, <laughs> what kind of data did you collect? I tracked which calls we received for scheduling and when. Or something. I don't know. But the point is, when you oversell, you end up overselling. And it just looks bad. It makes what you actually did look not as impressive. She keeps saying contract. I mean, she said contract half a dozen times in the last four sentences. She also said um, monthly meetings in two consecutive sentences. Which monthly meetings? Why? So what? Yeah. Why do I care what the frequency is of these meetings? No, in fact, the less frequent they are, the less important they may be. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand why. It. I think two things. I, she's well. One thing. 
I think she didn't read this out loud. I feel like that monthly meetings would be super grating if you read that out loud and heard it two sentences in a row. Mm-hmm. It says, there we go again with the contracts and there we go again with the monthly meetings. It's like she's repeating herself a lot. And I think if she had read this out loud, she wouldn't, I don't think that, I think she would have had to cut some of those. Okay. Originally I manually recorded this second part in a spreadsheet. I found myself taking hours every evening to log scheduling data at 4 PM and then 7 PM for each one of 10 domestic bases. Uh, you know, like you talking about your own inefficiency, like you created a nightmare problem for your, like a nightmare project for yourself, for your volunteer job. Uh, on the one hand, I mean, I get it. Like you're showing, Hey, I worked my ass off on this, but on the other hand, it's like really hours every evening. I mean, do we even believe that that's true? Literally it's hours not impressive. every it's, evening is what it says. It's not, yeah, it's not the hours that you put in that's impressive. It's the work you did. So just say you, we don't need to know this. Just say you logged the scheduling data. I don't need to know that you did it at four and then at seven. Raises the question too, like why those two times? I don't know. You could have just said it was too much data collection for one volunteer to handle And then her next sentence is, so I took the data collection idea to the internal reserve training in Chicago, where it was met.
what's going to happen here as you, you decided to train other people to do this shit. That's great. That's a very managerial thing, by the way. You know, well, also this just shines light back on the fact that it was inefficient in the first place. Just say I started logging this data to realizing its value. I asked others to start doing it and they did. And then I yeah. helped them. And this is I created a process and I got other people to volunteer to do the process. I, her workload was. That doesn't impress anyone. Um, it's very common.
hopefully.
on that other different topic, and I would love to do it again on the show. Um, but I, yeah, I'm over the volunteer stuff. I'm not saying you can't do it. I just am not very interested in it. But I am totally interested in the in the uh, flight attendant theme, focusing on you actually solving problems. You know, like the things that you have to do to ensure the successful operation of your aircraft. I would love to hear those stories. Um, we got to wrap it up there. We're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, all the social medias at thinking LSAT and at LSAT demon. We are at thinking LSAT on Twitter. I'm at N Fox on Twitter. If you want to reach out to me, that's a good place to do it. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes, email the show help at thinking That was episode 269 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.